All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with stage and screen actor Benjamin Byron Davis about Lord Byron, the history of acting, Dutch Vanderlyn, Rockstar, Red Dead Redemption, Mushrooms, and more. And if you're out there listening to this and you feel so inclined, please leave us a review. They help us show up on the algorithm and all that good stuff. And also, if you prefer YouTube, I do upload audio versions and short video clips to YouTube as well. And for all you Red Dead Redemption fans listening to this, we do have an upcoming recording with Roger Clark. You'll know him as Arthur Morgan, of course. So if you do have any questions, send them to the socials and whatnot, and we'll pick the best ones. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Careful, gentlemen. There's all sorts of monsters, madness, and magic around these parts. Now saddle up. Soon we ride for Blackwater. I've got a plan. Boils and ghouls, this is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Just to get us started here, take us back in time. You're a youngster. Were you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? Let me, let me hear those again. A book reader, a for book sure. Reader, fort builder, troublemaker. Well, some of my fondness, that's so, I haven't thought of that in a long time. One of my favorite things to do, you know, I'm the youngest of three boys, and I had inherited, I think they'd been my mother's before they'd been any of ours, but these great building blocks, and one of my favorite things to do with the buddy would be to build them as high as we could in my bedroom and then spend the afternoon populating these towers with uh, Star Wars action figures <laughs> and awesome. have little little battles and little things. And then, but the grand finale would always be, and we'd take turns, who would get to pull out the bottom block. That would always get us in a little bit of trouble. We're talking early 80s? That's gotta be, yeah, early 80s. Early 80s. Gotcha. Right between Star Wars and Empire. Gotcha. I'm, a, I'm an old fogey at this point. <laughs> How early on does your interest in the arts arise? Are you a theater kid? Like, What's going on there? Uh, that's a great question. I, 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 I was a theater kid for sure. I had a, a mom who was an arts educator and her mom was an educator. And so the arts was always very valued in my home. And I was a visual artist and a painter and a, and a, a very avid comic book fan. And that mm. sort of sparked uh, my direction in, in drawing. But in terms of theater, I was about nine. And my parents, you know, I was very lucky. I mean, I wish every kid could be as lucky that I got taken to see a lot of Broadway shows. And I grew up in Boston. And at the time in Boston, a lot of Broadway shows would test in Boston before they go to New York. So I got to see just an obscene amount of amazing theater. And, and in uh, 79, there was a national. So I was, no, it couldn't have been. Maybe it was 79. So maybe I was seven years old, maybe eight years old. And they took me to see Sweeney Todd with George Hearn and Angela Lansbury and Victor Garber. We had the soundtrack album, you know, and it was an album on a record player. I played that thing raw memorized the whole show in about a week and uh, that was probably the start of my fascination of being an actor which always seemed like a, a very far-fetched thing to try to be it got me into sort of theater classes and that yielded at around 12 i started going to a wonderful uh, now changed or if not if not completely defunct but a wonderful uh, program in dover massachusetts called charles river there's sunset charles river creative <laughs> arts program and that was an amazing place for for kids it was eight to 15 year old kids and we had 
art classes all day long and there was theater. And, and the thing that I got really interested in in those days was video and film production and animation. And so I did a lot of that there and ended up so enamored with that place and that at 15 I became a CIT there and by 17 or 18 I was a counselor and a department head and I stayed there until probably into my 20s my early 20s but that was a wonderful place and I learned a lot and it, it fostered my love of the arts and do you still draw I do. I do. Not I'm not I'm not I don't do it I think it's safer to say I still doodle. Hmm. I don't I don't take the time. I don't give it its due. It's proper hmm. attention. But I, I I do like to draw. And usually, you know, when I'm working on a project, one of the things that I will do is is as I'm trying to figure out who the guy I'm playing is, I'll try to find him in art as well. And once I can sort of draw a picture of what that guy is in my head, it makes it a little bit easier to inhabit the character. That makes sense. Yeah, 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 it does. That's not a skill everybody has. So that's kind of unique, a unique approach to preparing for a character, I'd say. So, uh, do you remember your very first time on stage? How'd that go for you? <laughs> I got in trouble. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, it, it was also plagiarism. <laughs> I, I, or I guess it was uh, homage. There you go. There was uh, on Sesame Street. Grover would be a waiter, <laughs> and he would bring out food to this guy who was waiting for his food, and it would always be wrong. And the and the and the Muppet that was upset would get very upset. And so I staged a production in Mrs. Levin's second grade class called "This Restaurant Sucks." <laughs> And uh, that language was too foul for Mrs. Levin. So I, I had to, I got, I got edited down to, I think I settled on this restaurant stinks. The, the first real play that I did was in eighth grade, or no, seventh grade. It was Brigadoon. I was townsperson number one, and which was a part I would go on and play many times. <laughs> and, but it was no, I was the largest kid. And I was the only kid who was big enough to do a fireman's carry on uh, the poor guy who dies in that story. I forget the character's name, but that got me a pretty some featured time, some really good stage time. And I, I was I dug my teeth into townsperson number one. <laughs> did you draw him? You know what? No, I didn't draw him, but I did. I did. Uh, I created lots of business for him, and I, I put a lot of time in. I had a couple of rubber chickens, and I tied them to a stick. So in the opening number, I could be walking around. And I, I don't know if it was welcome or tolerated by the director, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, threw, I gave it, I gave it my all, which I, I've tended to do since then. How does your first professional stage opportunity eventually happen for you? I had gone to NYU, uh, the Tisch School of the Arts. I was training at Playwrights Horizons Theater School. And the first thing, uh, the first professional, I mean, professional in the sense that there were reviews of it in, mm. the, in the paper was at a theater that's still there, I believe, on, on uh, Sixth Avenue in New York called the Here Theater. And Tim Maynard had a, a theater company called the Tiny Mythic Theater Company. And he did a show called Seven that was unfortunately timed at, I think, exactly the time that the David Fincher movie Seven came out. Eesh. But this yeah. was step Seven, the House of Seven Gables. It was based on, and it was an immersive theater experience. You know, I did a lot of downtown theater. So this would be, you'd have weeks and weeks, if not months of rehearsals. And then you'd have, you know, maybe a month of performances. But this was immersive theater. And I played a, a ghost of somebody in the in the family. I guess that was the first one. <laughs> Seven. What was your favorite role to play in all your time on stage? Justin, I've been pretty lucky with some of the parts. I, the, the the my favorite roles on stage. <laughs> well, in high school, I got to play Tevya with a fake beard. I couldn't grow a real beard. I love playing that part so much for a company called New York Theater Workshop. One of the last shows I did in. New York before I moved to LA was called Bloody Poetry and it was written by a British playwright named Howard Brent uh, and I got to play Lord Byron in that and that was a lot of fun and there's a character I drew a lot and yeah uh, I was going to ask you about that is is that your namesake per chance or is that just a coincidence it's, it's not my grandfather is Byron uh, Davis and gotcha. I and so I'm named after him and my uncle also is Byron Davis and so it's a family name I don't know that I don't rightly know whether or not it was inspired by Lord Byron or whether it was just a family name mm -hmm. in the Davises going back it was interesting to me because my in, in, in high school a great teacher an English teacher of mine 
uh, James Bride, who, oddly enough, I was talking about yesterday. He used to call me Lord Byron back in mm. high school because of my middle name. The great thing about playing a, a, an historic character, particularly Lord Byron, is you've got all of their artistic output. But in the case of Byron, a lot of his journals were burned by his publisher and, and by Percy Shelley after his death because there was scandalous details in these journals. The ones that survived, I read with great interest. He was one of the most successful guys of the era, and yet he thought himself a total failure in his early 20s. And it's just very interesting. And there's, his prose is even more beautiful, I think, than his poetry. But so Byron, that was a great play. I wish that had gone longer. And then when I first got to New York, I don't know, are you familiar with the uh, Russian novel called The Master and Margarita? I'm not familiar. It's a great book. And when I got to LA around the turn of the century, another theater company that, that I uh, was very lucky to be a part of was called Zoo District, uh, which was taken from Bertolt Brecht. But in the conceit of Master and Margarita, or one of the conceits of Master and Margarita is that communism has come to Russia and it, and it claims to make humanity better. And so the devil hears about this and he's very curious to see if there is a political ideology that can overcome human nature and the devil's betting that there isn't. And <laughs> he goes to Moscow to uh, prove his point and he does so wonderfully. And it was a show we did nearly 100 performances of. It ran for about a year. That was probably the pinnacle, my favorite theatrical role, I think, on stage, that is. I'm going to read that book. So, uh, say it for me again, more time. It's called The Master and Margarita by Bulgakov. Gotcha. Um, and you, you will enjoy it, I can assure you. I'm definitely going to do that. So how does the transition from stage to screen happen for you eventually? Well, well, as I said, even when I was in, in my teens, film production and, and acting in film was a fascination of mine. I'd been given, you can get it now on YouTube, I think, but when I was about 12 years old, my grandmother, Anne, who was married to my grandfather, Byron, got me a videotape of a master class that Michael Caine had done mm. called Acting in Film, where he talks about tenets of film acting that remain quite, they're still vital today. They're, they're still, you know, and it deals with a lot of the things that a non-performer might not even consider in terms of eye lines and, and size. And so I was fascinated with that. And I was fascinated, and even when I was at NYU, I was trying very hard to get into student films and work on camera as much as I could. It was a, a real ambition of mine. And the other thing that was going on in the 90s in New York was that the actors that, if, you're, if the ambition was to get on Broadway, at that point in time, where I was at the time was off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway. And when a show off-Broadway would move to Broadway, the actors that made it a hit off-Broadway would tend to be replaced by film actors or TV actors when it got to Broadway. And so it just sort of seemed to me that going to LA was a matter of when, not, not if. I had to move out of the apartment I was in in New York around 1999. And that prompted a buddy of mine moved out here from Seattle and he was finding, he, not an actor, but, but he was loving Los Angeles. And I came out to visit him, hustled some meetings and yeah, threw everything in the back of a truck and came out here, no doubt to the great delight of the entire industry. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> and, uh, and then it was, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot, it took a long time to get any kind of momentum as it, as it can. You know, some people, it, some people it goes very quickly. Other people, it doesn't go at all. And, and then some people get to sort of eke out uh, living and, and work towards, you know, within the union, you work towards a pension, you get your health insurance and, you know, you lo and behold, a working actor, right. which is a, a hell of a thing to be. It's a crazy thing to, to be. <laughs> I talked to Andrew Divoff a couple of weeks ago, and it's funny that you mentioned Michael Caine because he was uh, Michael Caine's limo driver, and that's kind of how he fell into it. And he said that uh, he was driving Michael Caine one evening and in the middle of uh, Hollywood Boulevard, and Sean Connery is walking across the street. Michael Caine knocks on the window, tells Andrew to stop, and they just have a conversation right there in the middle. No one's honking or anything. They're just standing there flashing cameras, and that was his kind of introduction to the business. Got to be a fly on the wall <laughs> with those two icons. Holy cow. Now, did did Michael Caine give him advice or he just happened to be his it was, I think it was a by association type thing so yeah you reading the Michael Caine book and him literally driving Michael Caine around <laughs> you yeah. both kind of led you in the right direction well I'll tell you what you, you think about an actor like Michael Caine who's been at it for as long as he has he's done 200 films he's 
the impact that that one person has had on generations of actors. It's one of the things that's appealing to me about the craft itself is that it is a, this sort of generational conversation and that the impact that you hope to have lingers, doesn't just linger, it, all of the teachers that trained me and all of the actors I've been fortunate enough to work alongside, I've learned lessons from all of them. And those lessons exist in my work. And with any luck, I'm passing on lessons to other actors. It's this really sort of wonderful ecosystem of storytelling. It's a lucky thing. I love actors that have the approach that you're talking about or the mindset about it, because you could look back 2,000 years for inspiration to plays and, you know, ancient Greece and whatnot, and you could still pull from that. It's, it's crazy. But, I mean, if you go pick up Aristotle's Poetics and read it, and what he's talking about, he's talking about the nature of telling stories. And the nature of telling stories is, well, it's kind of the nature of how we absorb anything as a society. And in many ways, we owe history, we owe language, we owe a lot of elements of culture to these odd little sort of people who got up in front of strangers and pretended to be other people and help tell stories. Well said. And usually in the darkest times, politically or socially, people turn towards the arts. Yeah, I, you know, I teach, a, I teach a small class on Mondays and I was out with some of the actors afterwards yesterday and we were sort of talking along these lines. And as long, you know, I'm, I just turned 50, which is a, a milestone to be sure. And it is a reflective one, you know. It makes you think a lot about time. Mm -hmm. And as long as I have been alive, I have heard the death knell of theater is upon us. The death knell of cinema is upon us. It is constantly being predicted that this is all over. And the fact of the matter is, theater made it through the bubonic plague. Theater, <laughs> theater made it through the fall of Rome. Theater will never abandon humanity. And the humans that abandon theater do so at their personal peril, but not at the peril of the establishment of theater. That's not going anywhere. Well said. So does your uh, a personal approach to a character change depending on if you're on stage or on screen? I don't think so. When you're acting on stage, who was I just was reading... Judy Dench said this in an interview I just read the other day, that when you're acting on stage, you get to revisit the character every day for, you know, and you get to refine it and you get to consider it, alter it, finesse it. When you're shooting a film, you got one day on that scene or maybe two days on that scene and it's gone. So you learn to let go of things in a way. But does that change the approach? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a thing in particularly working on TV, particularly if you're like, You've got something small to do and something big. You're a day player, you're guest star of the week and something. Then considerations that are not quite character considerations come in to the approach, you know, because if you're Dr. Exposition coming in to explain, you know, that the main character's child isn't going to die. Well, my approach is not to, you know, develop some deep backstory for the doctor and where he's going and what he had for lunch <laughs> and any of that, because that's not what you're there to do. You're there to, to dispense the information. There are some roles that are very work-a-day kind of roles, mm -hmm. and uh, you try not to make them too precious. And the, and the thing is, is that that lesson then applies as you, or as I, I guess, as I move through my career, the more I can treat a role as, a, every role is sort of a work-a-day role, as you call it a craft, it's like carpentry is a craft, or it's like other people on a set are craftsmen. The people that are, are sewing the costumes and the people that are designing them and the people that are rigging the lights and what have you, they're all craftspeople. And I think actors are too. And I think sometimes we can get caught up in the alchemy of it. The proverbial actor gets a knock on the door and I know I'm not feeling it, can't go out there, I'll be in my trailer. And if you imagine a makeup artist doing that, or you imagine a, a sound guy doing that. So I, I have a pretty dim view of that kind of stuff. I guess this is a long-winded answer, but my approach is increasingly, how do you make it mundane? How do you make it a day's work? So uh, I don't think we've mentioned your solo shows up to this point. What was your uh, inspiration for taking the solo route? I don't, how do you even know about my solo show? Okay. <laughs> uh, hey wow. man, I, I, I prepped. I'm quite impressed, Justin. <laughs> All right. Well, the solo shows, <laughs> the uh, first one, I was very lucky. I had a wonderful teacher at NYU named Travis Preston, a real mentor to me. And I was a transfer student. I had dropped out of the University of Chicago in my junior year before I went to NYU. He was trying to figure out a way to help me get some attention for myself as any actor needs, especially starting out. And he was thinking about all these solo shows we might do. 
I decided to tell him the story of there's no two ways about it. I had a bad trip when I was a student at University of Chicago on a lot of uh, kids don't try this at home psychedelic uh, mushrooms. And it yielded in, I believed for about nine hours that I had died. And that experience gave me a degree of clarity that I did not want to be at that school any longer and that I needed to really go and follow my dream, which was to apply to NYU and see if I could get in. And so while we're trying, Travis hadn't known that that had happened. It's not not a story that, you know, you advertise. (laughs) And I told him about it and he started me, he gave, you know, we developed this process of uh, preserving the story. And I spent a summer hammering out a fairly tight script for a 60 minute show that was essentially the true story of, (laughs) of how I washed out at University of Chicago. And it was pretty good. And I brought it out to L.A. when I first got out to L.A. I put it up out here, and that got me to the attention of a wonderful, uh, at that time, producer named Stephanie Ziv. And Stephanie brought it to the attention of, at that time, the new head of casting of NBC, who was Mark Hirschfeld. That's how I met Cammie Patton, and that's when I started actually having some uh, entree into real rooms and real offices because of that first show. And then a couple of years later, (laughs) I um, met a producer, but the second show was based on uh, an experience where me and another actress and two producers were essentially blackmailed into going to Maui, where the writer producer of a play we were working on announced to us all that he was the Messiah. And, uh, (laughs) And so Justin, so I quit that project. <laughs> and I and I and I wrote another a second one man show and it was a story about that experience. This time I changed everybody's names to protect the innocent and not so innocent. And it was and that one that one went very well as well and it, it got some very positive attention. But I got to the end of that process that we brought that back to New York and and I just sort of at the end of it I after finishing that one first of all I didn't have any more sort of existential crises to write shows about. <laughs> but beyond that, working on a solo show, particularly an autobiographical solo show, except for the nights where there's an audience, and even the nights when it's, there's an audience, it's such an isolating, navel-gazing kind of an experience. And on good nights or bad nights, there's no other... I like being a part of an ensemble. Mm-hmm. And when you're just working by yourself, it ceased to be, I sort of thought maybe I'd do one in every decade of my life. I did the first one in my 20s. I do the. I did the second one in my early 30s. Maybe I'd do one in my 40s, but I, I didn't really have the, I didn't have the stomach for it at, at a certain point. It was enough of talking about me. And I turned my attention towards being other people as opposed to just being, which at the end of the day though, the lessons that you learn about being honest and being willing to be courageous enough to tell hard truths about yourself those things are essential to any artist, I think. And so in a lot of ways, it was it remained great, great training. And uh, so I, I owe uh, Travis Preston and Claritz Rises Theater School a great debt for putting me on that path because I learned so much doing those two shows. And they were called In Absentia was the first one, and the second one was called Big Shot. You'd be surprised how many great stories start with tripping balls on mushrooms. <laughs> well, that was, I, I, you know what? But here's the thing. It's like... That was talking about like personal truths, right? So that was, to me, that was a story about a kid who was trapped and afraid to disappoint his family and afraid to fail and afraid to really take control of his life, even though he knew what it was he wanted to do. And to me, that's what that story was. But, and some people would see that play and they would come and they would they would see that exactly. But other people would see that play, and for them it was like, it was a drug culture play. It was about drug culture. And other people thought it was a comedy. Other people thought it was, so you learn, oh, this is what happened. So people see themselves in art. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a powerful lesson. So the, the real lesson, and I've gone, I've directed some other folks who do their own solo shows, and, and one of the tenants that, if it's not a biographical show, this may resonate for some people, but this idea that there is this sort of awful corner of yourself that if, if your friends only knew about, or this this terrible sort of wretched piece of you that would be shunned by everybody, that would be hated by everybody, if they only, and it, it makes us feel small, and it makes us feel 
afraid. And the thing is, is, is in art, if you have the courage to announce it, to name it, to say it, to just put it out there and say, that's me, that little thing will be the thing that everybody else goes, that's me. I see myself in that. When we're all so polarized right now, I just wish people just hmm. would, rem- would remember that. We are all so much the same. Well said. And it's just a weird synchronicity because I promise I'm not name dropping here, but Brian <laughs> Brian Thompson was here a few weeks ago and he said that taking mushrooms, just like you said, changed his whole perspective. He was in college. He took the mushrooms and for the first time in his life, he felt like he saw past people's surface level. Like he felt like he walked around for two weeks seeing people's souls and he hasn't, he hasn't been the same since. That's mm-hmm. big deal. I'm not endorsing necessarily. Well, substances... The Beatles use substances. A lot of the beat poets use substances. There, there is something to be said for you know. And, and beyond substances, you think of how much how much alcohol has been associated with authorship and writers and, and actors and, and what have you. In my work, I tend to I, I don't tend to. I will only ever work sober. But that said, I think that any opportunity that you have to, to take a risk, any opportunity that you have to find an epiphany of one sort or another, but particularly any opportunity that you have to look past yourself and see other people, I think is something that you should take. There's no two ways about it. That that experience changed my life for the better and got me on a path that I'm still very glad to be walking. You mentioned TV earlier. You've worked across many genres, comedy to drama. Do you have a, a preference between all those uh, genres? Well, I used to get in, like, you know, when you go, when you're taking meetings with agency, one of the questions that they'll ask a young actor is, what kind of actor are you? Are you a comedic actor? Are you a dramatic actor? And I would always say, I'm a good actor. Then I would not be represented. <laughs> because that's not the answer that anybody wants to hear. But, it, but that to me is the answer. I mean, th- th- there is always this desire to, to parse acting right so he's a theater actor he's a a stage actor this is a film actor Mm -hmm. this guy does he's a commercial actor this guy does sitcoms that's a day player he's a character actor my favorite voice actor he's a voice actor and at the end of the day what the hell man it's just an actor just an actor an actor at the end of the day and listen there's there's no question that there are styles of acting that what you do in a three camera sitcom situation, the style, as it were, or the size, you might say, that you employ in that space or in a, you know, or the style that you employ in a Broadway review or the or the style that you would employ in a very intimate, you know, living room, a Chekhovian sort of a, a play. We can point to stylistic differences between these different things, but I don't think that those stylistic differences constitute a different form of acting. It's always going to be acting. What is true is always going to be true. Honest is always going to be honest. Supported is always going to be supported. So you can be working in whatever style. I don't care if it's a sitcom. I don't care if it's if it's a, a Hyundai commercial. If it's unsupported, if it's false, if it's empty, it's going to be lousy. There's an acting coach called Declan Donnellan, wrote a wonderful book called The Actor and the Target. And he talks about it's nearly impossible to describe what good acting is but it is simple to express what bad acting is the moment you see it you know it so the reality is is to me what it comes down to is are you connected are you in the pocket are you focused are you at ease are you relaxed i look at my early stuff when putting together a reel or something and you know I, i see all the early work that i did and all i see is tension all i see is fear all i see is you know it's a it's an actor learning he's he's not i'm not anywhere close to the pocket yet i'm just i'm i'm hanging on by the by my fingernails just trying to stay in the scene but it gets it gets easier over time just like with anything else you know it takes practice all right ben let's talk red dead redemption Oh, yeah. <laughs> that thing. <laughs> so I've heard of that. <laughs> first game, landing the role of Dutch. Is that your typical audition, or was it right place, right time sort of deal? 
it was not at all a typical audition. It, Rockstar, I think they still do this. I don't know for sure, but they go through, I think, in part partly because of secrecy, but I think that they go through commercial casting. Now, my agent represented me both as in commercial, but so this was technically a commercial audition. And this was at a place called Kathy Knowles Casting in Santa Monica. I live in Hollywood. It was, I think, at four o'clock in the afternoon. You ever been to L.A.? I have not. Well, let me tell you something. At four o'clock in the afternoon in L.A., you don't want to go anywhere. (laughs) And the last thing you want to do is drive from Hollywood to Santa Monica. If you want to get to Santa Monica at four o'clock in the afternoon in L.A., you've got to leave at about 2.15. And then you're not going to be home till 6, 6.30. So I almost didn't go uh, (laughs) to the audition. And I got there, and it was for an untitled cowboy project. And I got there, and there were some very, I'll say, eager actors i know i just said you don't parse acting there are actors that audition for i used to go out for was it capital one insurance that had the all the vikings or they were uh, yeah yeah and the cavemen is that what you're talking cavemen, about I, uh, any one of those yeah things. yeah i go out for, i go anytime it's a large freaky dude i would get the audition <laughs> but you go and you those waiting rooms you people like go for it like they come they think like if i put together the, the best pirate costume they're going to hire me like your job is the costume which by the way it's not but so i get there for this audition justin and there is a guy wearing a native american headdress and maybe some war paint and there's another guy with plastic six shooters on and everybody everybody's got a plaid shirt and blue jeans and everybody's trying to look like a cowboy and i'm i'm dressed like me and <laughs> But I went in, I had done, and I did this, you know, I sound a lot like Dutch just naturally, but there are certain things that are specific to him that I developed doing a different character. When I did a short film called Black Eyed Sue and got this sort of wheezy sounding voice, I accentuated the break in my voice, which I'd spent lots of years trying not to have, but uh, it worked well in this character and so i went in and there's there was the copy ended up being copy that in the game is it's actually in the game it's bonnie mcfarland's dad and he's got a monologue about how he's buried more children than he's raised wonderful little monologue and so i read that francesca was the producer in the room she said do that again which is always nice because not a note just do it again Mm -hmm. did it again she said, we're, we're going to have something for you on this, for sure. And then she said, she asked if I had trouble simulating uh, violence against women, I think, in particular. And I said, no, not at all, which is the right answer to any question if you want to get a job. Right. I, don't, I don't have a problem with it whatsoever. And then I didn't hear anything for ever that seemed like it was just over. And that was before Christmas, I think, and then maybe April. So months had gone by and I get told at a date and time and out in Santa Monica again. And I report to the job. I don't think I'd been given sides beforehand. I met Rod Edge, who was the director of the first game and the director of the second game, one of my favorite collaborators I've ever worked with. And then the other thing was there was was there was Rob Weedoff, who I had who played John Marston, and mm-hmm. he and I had met. We had met about six or seven years before that because we both worked security at the Sky Bar out here. In it's like, what are you doing here, man? And he's like, I'm the I'm 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 the cowboy. And I was like, oh my god. And that's and he was my scene partner for all of it. It was amazing. And we did rehearsal days, and then you came back to do capture days. And in capture days, that's when you put on the suit. We had cowboy boots. On that one, we didn't have six shooters. But we also had this thing that I hadn't anticipated, which is this this helmet that they put on your head. And they were capturing our faces for that work. And that, at that time, at least one of the guys on the stage said, this is, I think it was 2008 or 2009, he said, the only other show using this technology is called avatar and i didn't know what that was <laughs> and our tech was not as nearly as good as what i saw in the behind the scenes for avatar but that was my first experience with performance capture and that technology is profound yeah did you guys record communally together like you and the voice for john and arthur or was it a single it's, it's every single scene that you see and this is such it's people don't understand it and rockstar is so secretive about their process i know other studios will 
put together behind the scenes of how this process works. So if you ever go and you look at some of the behind the scenes for Last of Us or, or Uncharted series, particularly the later ones, they have this the helmet tech too. But every single scene that we're together in, we were together in. And the thing on, on the first Red Dead, and the first scene I ever shot on the first Red Dead was a confrontation between John and Dutch. And he's on the second floor of a hotel with Joe Ackman's character. He's playing the professor, the heroin-addicted Yale professor. And I'm shooting up through the window and uh, taunting them and saying I'm going to kill them. That was the first thing I ever did in performance capture. First thing I ever did is Dutch. And the three of us are all on what's called the volume. And the, where the windows are are sort of set up, they're wooden blocks that are set up, and the second floor, they're all acting out the second floor, and I'm down on the street with a couple of guys beside me, and I'm walking down on the street, but in reality, we're all on the same soundstage, we're all at the same height, and I'm two feet from Rob, and I'm pointing up and yelling, and he's pointing down and yelling, and we're pretending that we're right. at different altitudes. <laughs> So there's a lot of that sort of thing, a lot of like head scratching stuff that the animators and the, the geniuses over there know how to make use of. But on Red Dead 1, not only are we all together in every scene that we're doing together, every one of those scenes is a single take. So we couldn't move on to another scene until we got it perfect. Because for whatever reason, at that time, the tech didn't allow for internal cuts within the data that was collected. Right. That that makes sense. Right. When we got to, to Red Dead 2, thankfully, very thankfully, you could muff a line, you could muff a part of a scene, you could save the part that w was good. In Red Dead 1, every single one of those scenes is a single take. I love that. And I think the energy of that really reads, too. I've never seen any behind-the-scenes stuff for Red Dead, but I can tell as a fan of the game that you guys were together because that's not common these days that much anymore. But it, se it seems like it'd be almost impossible to do that game if you guys weren't feeding off each other. There's not a chance. And, the, and then the other thing, again, it's this, this sort of misnomer of parsing acting, right? And so you call it a voice actor. Very naturally, everybody sort of assumes that I'm alone with a pile of pages speaking into a microphone. Yeah and then uh, Rob, and then Raj, and then everybody else alone and alone and alone. And that's just not how any of it was done. The booth was used if we had to clean up dialogue, and then the booth was used for stuff where we're riding on horseback. And that's principally it. Every other thing, even stuff that you think was in-game, is us. And the other thing that Rockstar did for two, we all have our own walk cycles. So even when, when it's not us, even when it's the AI takes over. It's still, this is really inside baseball, but like, for example, on the on the first game, you've got generic walk cycle for all the women, a generic walk cycle for all the men, and then John Marston's got a walk cycle. For Red Dead 2, Mary Beth Gaskell's got her own walk cycle, and, and, and Susan Grimshaw, Kylie Vernoff's got her own walk cycle. And they did, it's just amazing what they put together. And that's how those, those camp, you know, the camp stuff is just so immersive and yeah. amazing. And it's really really kind of freaky because <laughs> i go in there and it feels like i'm hanging out in the green room back in the day when we were making these you know the four and a half five years that we were we were working on this thing where we'd all have those great days where we were all hanging out and working mm -hmm. together. It's amazing you mentioned earlier how you like to dive into your characters maybe sometimes draw them so character of dutch is unwinding before you who's one of the most complex crazy written characters in history his how how do you feel about Dutch? How do I feel about Dutch? I feel blessed, just blessed. You know, we, at the start of our conversation, we talked about Sweeney Todd. I always wanted to play a character that, that was that complex and that sort of murderous, yet lovable, yet funny, yet terrifying. Like all of the things that sort of Sweeney Todd put in me in terms of what I wanted to do as an actor, the two titles that I got to play Dutch fulfilled me in such profound ways. So how how do I feel about Dutch? I feel lucky and it's and, and astonished, you know. Because the other thing is, is it's, you sort of you do this work and you do it in secret. You're not responsible for how it comes out, when it comes out, where it comes out. But normally, when you're working in TV or even in a film, you do the work 
and you wait about a year and it comes into the world and then it goes up on the shelf mm -hmm. and then you, hopefully you're hopefully you're already on to the next thing this was nearly five years in secret <laughs> but it's also you don't like we get to see some of the work but we were it was really like we were we were responsible for sort of holding these characters in our hearts and our minds and keeping them alive throughout this whole long process and let me tell you i was a pig in shit through all of it every <laughs> every, every second of it was just luck 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 and fun fun so much fun but then this thing happened and it got released which you, know, you almost forget that you're working on something that will ever see the light of day <laughs> and it got released and to see the impact that it's had and the the scope you know that a rock star title has in, in terms of how far every corner of the planet it goes to it's humbling doesn't begin to describe it but that so many people have been able to intersect with all of our work that, mm -hmm. and, and I love that you brought up that of course we're working together it's because the other thing about the voice actor label is an ensemble like that doesn't come along every day and to be a part of that ensemble because that's so that's the other thing I think about Dutch like Dutch in the first game Dutch was in a vacuum I was in a vacuum I, I had I mean I did maybe four or five scenes with the guy and then it was gone but it turned out pretty good I was really proud of it but then when 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 we came back and it when they when Rockstar came calling I I knew everything that we owed we owed so much we owed so much story so much of the past had been talked about in the first game so it was just it was letting learning how that's all gonna unfold but then the other thing was was it was the tech had changed so it wasn't mm. just three people on a soundstage every time you were working. We were doing scenes where it was a dozen of us around a campfire singing. All of us. That Man. opening scene, the opening scene of the game where we're walking in and Davey's dead and he goes up, and, you know, and that was the whole game. We were all together. It was 15 or 16 actors. And that's also, that was, I think we did seven takes of that. But that's, they built the whole set. Everything that you see us touching, we're touching. Man, it's... Uh, that's what sets it apart. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry. That's what sets it apart. It's just not common. That's that's no. that's rock star. That's rock star, man. Mm -hmm. there, it is. There is there there is nobody like them. There's there, and that's not to say there aren't extraordinary AAA houses. There are. It's not to say there aren't just mind-bogglingly great indie houses. There are. What Rockstar does, I don't think anyone else can do. Did you ever play the games to see your work? Oh, yeah. No, 100%. I've, I've, I've beat the first Red Dead 20 <laughs> times. I've played through the second game two and a, two and a half times, I guess. The second, But the second playthrough, I 100% of it. That's good to hear. <laughs> Just, you, you spend five years on a thing, <laughs> you, you are going to. And it's also, <laughs> it was kind of. I don't know if this is true for other members of the gang, because I know there's a lot. Uh, Raj has played it. Steve Palmer, I know, has played it. Who plays Bill Williamson? There's others who haven't played it. But you do a show that runs for three weeks. You have a, you, There's a little bit of a, and actors will be familiar with this, you, you get to the end of the thing, and there's like a, a postpartum depression after a show mm -hmm. closes. This was five years together, and it left a kind of a hole. And playing that game was a way to... It was kind of an off ramp to sort of let go, but it still it took it was a long time with Dutch. It took a long time to to get in front of a microphone and not sound like a cowboy <laughs> with whatever I was doing, you know. Yeah. But yeah, no, I played the shit out of that game. I mean, yeah, and plus, even if you didn't contribute, it's just a great fucking game, you know. No, it's <laughs> but it does it kind of. I mean, it kind of. You know, I know I'm talking about something I was a part of, but it kind of ruins me for other games. Like I see, I see horses in other games, and I'm like, yeah, it's not a horse. That's not mud. No, 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 that's not mud. <laughs> that is not rain. <laughs> like right. it's what they did is so profoundly good. It set a bar. I hope other play, other studios will cross that bar, but I don't know that they have. Although I, I, I still don't have a PS5, can't get my hands on one of those. <laughs> and I still not we're not pinning you down to say you know oh there's more Red Dead, but I still feel like there's so much more to be told with Dutch. You could still go back to the early days of Dutch and Hosea, early days with Arthur finding Arthur in the street. It'd be it'd be something. I'm 
any chance to I, the only trepidation I'd have would be the same trepidation I had going back for the second one, which was I was so proud. And I told Rod on the first day, I was so, so, so proud of the work we did on the first Red Dead. And I felt like I'd actually sort of intersected with the zeitgeist a little bit with that game. And it was I was just very, very proud of it. And so when we went back to do the second one, it was the first question I asked Rod on the first day. I was like, are we gonna are we gonna step on what we did with the first game? He looked at me and he's like, You're crazy. It's gonna be better. <laughs> Ten times better. Yeah. He yeah, was, he wasn't wrong. He was right. But that would be the only thing, because now what we what was achieved with Red Dead Two, I mean, <laughs> line them up. <laughs> line up, line them up. I think I think it's the greatest game. Yeah, there's only so far the bar can go, you know. <laughs> So it's just that would be the only fear, but but again, I'm a working actor. I, I'll I'll take a paycheck. I'll go. I'll, I'll be there. I'll be there. And and any chance to intersect with those writers and intersect with those actors and intersect with that splendid, maddening, crazed character, I would jump at. We'd love to have you. And now, Ben, I'm not going to keep you all afternoon here. Just got a few to wind down. All right. No, this has been a real pleasure, man. I'm enjoying myself. All right. So what is the best acting advice you've received throughout your career? Other than don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) That's one I hear a lot. (laughs) Well, I've got, so as I said earlier, I I coach acting uh, students and and working actors too. And one of the things that'll happen with an actor who goes from not having had a job to booking is it's a bit like the dog catching the bus. Like it's uh, panic sets in, you know, it starts with joy, but then you're like, do I know what the hell I'm doing? <laughs> and so one of the strategies when I get the call is I've done more than a couple of times from an actor who's like, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to fail. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, they're, they're going to set and they're, they're freaking out. They're having imposter syndrome or whatever. First thing I do is, is I tell them to watch other actors, find somebody on a set, older than you and this i do this myself although there's fewer and fewer but you find (laughs) find somebody who's been at it longer watch how they conduct themselves and if you like the cut of their jib if you like the way they go at it emulate it but another thing that i do with one actor is i say i say when you get to set when you get comfortable because you will get comfortable because once you you know all the fear sort of tends to dissipate the moment Every actor, their first day on a set, they'll get to a point and they'll look around and they'll just sort of remember, oh, damn, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and, they'll, and they'll relax. But once you get, once you get that sorted, I'd say find, find somebody that seems wise and ask them pretty much the same question you just asked me. Ask them what the secret of acting is to them. And so one, one actor who did that, he got to a set. And he came back after he shot and it ended up being he was on that show ran for a couple of seasons but he came back and i asked him what was the advice that he had learned and he said that the uh, actor on the set said the most important thing to remember take all the time you need and then take some more and i like that the mantra for me that's kept me sane through the ups and downs because they because you go way up and you go way down and it's just people talk about it in terms of rejection which i don't accept i don't think that's reality i don't think anybody's getting rejected i think there's always a reason and it's never that somebody doesn't want you or doesn't like you or whoever else you want to take it but to me the thing is is it's nothing till it's something and that helps keep me level and an example of that i had an actor who uh, was at his wits end he'd auditioned he got in front of a big time director he hustled his way into that room and he'd spent a year getting there and which i always thought i don't like going into rooms i have to hustle to get into i like i like to be invited but he he he's got that hustle and he got into that room and he got in front of the director and nothing came of it and he wrote me this long letter like it was like a i'm quitting kind of a letter because does any of it matter? Is, is any of it worth it? And I wrote him back and I said, of course it matters. Of course it's worth it. And, you know, the next time you're in a room opposite an Academy Award winning director, it's not going to be the first time you're in a room opposite an Academy Award winning director. And he texts me about a week later. This isn't the part I went in for, but I got a different part. I'm going to be in this guy's movie. And I immediately wrote him back and I said, you don't know that you're in the movie. You know that you're working on the movie you're not going to know you're in the movie until you go to opening night and see yourself in the movie because anything can happen anything can happen 
And it's when we attach ourselves to outcomes, that's when I think we get very, that's when we can get disappointed. If you focus on the journey, if you focus on the process, it can keep you grounded in what is undoubtedly a very easy profession to get ungrounded in rather quickly. Right. And even if you end up on the cutting room floor, you know, you still got paid, you still got the experience and you still got the credit. <laughs> it's not, not only that, but that's I had a, a dear friend of mine asked me a long time ago because some of my clients have gone on to great, great success. And am I jealous? Which is a, any teacher would know that that's a dumb question, although most teachers would also say there's no such thing as a dumb question. <laughs> but she asked me if I was jealous of some of the achievements of other actors that I'd worked with. And I said, the only thing I ever envy of another actor is time between action and cut. Time between action and cut is where you really learn your craft. So even if you are, as you said, even if you are cut out of a show, you still had time between action and cut. And there's not a classroom. There's not a theater. There's not a, a education program. There is no way to learn how to find ease and be relaxed when you are surrounded by the mayhem of production and the panic of money being spent. And all of that, you've got to learn to put it completely aside, let everything melt away, and then just connect with the person on the other side of the scene. The only way to learn that is doing it. So who cares if you got cut? You spent, you spent time in between action and cut. You got better. I learned as much playing big guy number two as I learned playing Lord Byron. They're different lessons, but all of it contributes to uh, what I'm still learning how to do, which is be a better artist. So Ben, is there anything on the horizon that you can tell us about without getting in trouble? There are things on the horizon I cannot tell you about <laughs> without getting into trouble, which I'm excited about, hopefully sooner than later. But I, I can't say, the thing is, I, I don't have any details about when we're going to learn any more, but it's announced and known. I was cast in Borderlands for Lionsgate film and got to work with an extraordinary ensemble on that i'm very excited to see for people to see what we did and i got to work with some just extraordinary people and went from lockdown to uh, living in budapest to shoot this movie and it's a fun character it's an interesting thing to uh, go from having played a character in a video game to now playing a character from a video yeah, game yeah. in a live action uh, format is uh, it's sometimes funny how how things turn out but so uh, there's nothing i can tell you about about it except that i'm i'm very excited to see what's coming out i have no knowledge of dates or anything like that like i said ben it's been great talking to you you can go have lunch now go be with your family uh i'm not gonna hold you hostage <laughs> all right my friend well thank you it was a ton of fun really great questions and i hope i didn't i didn't prattle on too long no it was great i'll send you a link once it's all edited and pretty and whatnot Okay, please, please make it as pretty as possible. All right, <laughs> bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day all with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.